Hello, neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family day by day and week by week. We're meeting online right now, but we normally meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can catch our weekly gatherings live by checking out our website at www.newgarden.church online. We would love to hear from you. This week, Jeff provided a message about King Solomon, perhaps one of the most foolish wise men of all time. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. This is your first time joining us. We're taking a year-long journey through the Bible and inviting you to read along with us. This week, we've been reading the book of Kings, and we will continue in this book for about another week and a half. The books of 1 and 2 Kings are much like that of 1 and 2 Samuel, which we talked about last week. Uh, They were both divided to fit on two scrolls. So when it was written, it was just the book of Kings. And as the title suggests, it's about kings. But another thing to remember is that while we may classify this as the historical section of scripture, the Hebrew Bible has this book concluding the section of the former prophets, which means we should be looking for a description of God's verdict on Israel's way of life. Like are the kings and the people following the covenant of Yahweh, or are they turning away from Yahweh? So that was the major role of the prophets, not so much of predicting what's going to happen in the future, but pointing out what is currently happening and then pulling back the curtain to remind the people of where that path leads. And so uh, we're going to find two of the more famous prophets, Elijah and Elisha, in the book of Kings. Now, since we only have two Sundays in this book, we can't cover everything. So let's take a minute and get an overview. The book opens with David passing the throne to his son Solomon. Now, Solomon is only the third anointed king over this united kingdom of all the 12 tribes after Saul and David. And for all that Saul and David did, Solomon multiplies their accomplishments by expanding the borders and bringing peace and prosperity to the nation, but ultimately leading the nation to worship other gods. And God declares that the kingdom is going to be taken away. So when Solomon passes the throne to his son, Rehoboam, things fall apart quickly. There's a revolt that's led by Jeroboam in the north, and the kingdom splits between the northern tribes, called Israel, and that leaves the kingdom of Judah in the south, with the kings from the line of David. Then the book flips between the kings of the north and kings of the south, and judges them based on their faithfulness to God. Of the 19 kings in the northern Israel, zero of the 19 kings are good. Every one of them is bad which eventually leads to Assyria invading, capturing, and exiling the people from the land. The kings of the southern kingdom of Judah do a little better. Of the 20 kings, eight are said to have been good, but it's not enough to keep their leaders from ultimately leading to their downfall, uh, as well as Babylon invading Jerusalem and exiling the people. And so the book ends with both Israel and Judah as exiles from the promised land, which lets us finish the book with the answer of how did we get here as exiles in a foreign land, but it raises the question of what is God going to do to restore and fulfill the promises he has made? That's a question 
we'll start answering in a couple weeks. But for now, now that we have a picture of this book, let's go back to the beginning and look at one character in his story and see what we can learn and apply to our stories today. The person I want to talk about today is King Solomon. Now you can read about him in 1 Kings chapters 1 through 11. So if you have a Bible and you want to open it up, we're going to be skimming through these pages today. Now King Solomon, he's probably one of the more familiar kings of ancient Israel. He was the second son of David and Bathsheba, and he expanded Israel's borders and the economy more than any king in Israel's history. His name is derived from the Hebrew word for peace, or shalom. And peace, as a matter of fact, is one of the things he's remembered for. There are no major wars for the majority of his reign. The biblical authors look back on this time as a period of abundance. So Judah and Israel lived in safety. Everyone under their own vine and fig tree, from Dan to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Now you would think that Solomon must have been an amazing king for God to have blessed his reign with such wealth and peace, right? Like you would think that because of so many stories about him extol his wisdom and his wealth and the enormous size of his kingdom. However, there is more than meets the eye when it comes to the glorious reign of Solomon. Way more, actually. The story of Solomon is this perfect example of a brilliant subtlety of the biblical authors. So instead of coming out and saying, listen, so-and-so was really amazing and they did everything right in the eyes of God, more often the authors will simply just present you with the choices of the biblical character and then show you the outcome. And then instead of wrapping up with like this tidy moral summary, you're left to ponder and reflect on what good was in the character and what was lacking. So, how did it all start with Solomon? The story of Solomon begins with David on his deathbed in chapter 1. He's giving Solomon this final charge to remain faithful to the covenant between God and Israel. As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of Yahweh your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn, so that Yahweh may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful of their ways to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So right after David dies, Solomon kills off any potential threats and buries some of the old grudges of his father by literally burying them. And then we read that Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and marries his daughter. Now, if you've been paying attention to the story since Exodus, you might think, what? Like, this seems like a strange relationship to be in with a country that once enslaved you. But the narrator calms your nerves a bit because Solomon goes... And he makes these like extremely generous sacrifices to Yahweh. And it says that Solomon loved Yahweh. But maybe we're still suspicious. It seems like Solomon is, is being set up to have to choose between the two. Like you love Yahweh, great. But you also marry the daughter of Pharaoh. Can that possibly be a good idea? Now maybe he can maintain his allegiance to the God of Israel while negotiating a marriage alliance with Egypt. Maybe they've changed since uh, enslaving Israel for over 400 years. But, you know, it's like, I doubt it. Solomon then has this dream, which God offers him anything he wants. At Gibeon, Yahweh appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. 
Like, what a deal. Like, what would you ask for? I mean, obviously, a million more wishes, right? Uh, but instead of asking for money or power, Solomon responds, Now, Yahweh, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child, and I do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Now, if you're like me, I've always heard Solomon asks for wisdom and God gives it to him. That's not exactly what Solomon asks for. He says, give me a discerning heart or more literally a heart that listens, a listening heart. Why? Well, so he can function as a judge for the people and so he can distinguish right and wrong, good and evil. Now, as we think back on our long story short, have we met anyone who has, had been, who has been given the choice of who to listen to when it comes to good and evil? Like, yeah, Adam and Eve in the garden. They were faced with this choice. They can take of this fruit, which appears to give them the freedom to decide good and bad, or they can listen to the voice of the Creator and look to Him for wisdom and guidance. And we know the story. They take the fruit and everything falls apart. But now... And if you were with us uh, when we talked about the snake crusher, like bells are going off. Now we have a seed of the woman, a seed of David, who unlike his predecessor says, I don't want to define good and evil on my own. God, like, give me a heart that listens and lets you define good and evil so that I can execute wise judgments and govern well. I imagine God like sitting back in his throne, looking around at the divine council saying like, get a load of this guy, right? Like, that's what I'm talking about. God is so pleased. He, he sees Solomon's request as good. And God's so pleased that this, this response that he gives him is abundant wisdom along with wealth and power. Like this is the context that leads to the famous and somewhat odd story about the two prostitutes who come to Solomon, each one claiming to be the mother of a, a baby. And it's an illustration of his wisdom. Like he's a man who can see beneath the surface and discern people's motive and character. And so the story continues to set Solomon up as this like potential legitimate hero. So you're feeling pretty good. But then you turn the page and next comes a list of Solomon's officials, which makes sense. Like if he's going to expand the kingdom, he needs a solid centralized governing team. So we read through the list of these officials thinking like weird name, weird name, fun name, weird job. And then you come to the last name on the list and you read Adoniram, son of Abdah in charge of forced labor. And while most people would read over that without a thought, you are not most people, because you're thinking, forced labor? Like, haven't I heard that somewhere before? I know I have. And then later in chapter nine, you read what Solomon is building with this forced labor. Here is the account of the forced labor King Solomon conscripted. He built up all his store cities and the towns for his chariots. Forced labor, store cities, and it hits you. There's only one other place in the Hebrew Bible that talks about slavery and store cities. In Exodus chapter 1 verse 11 it says, So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. So not only has Solomon connected himself to Egypt by marrying the daughter of Pharaoh, he's taken a page out of Pharaoh's own playbook of how to treat people. And our heart sinks. Slave labor among the Israelites? Like I thought slavery was a thing of Israel's past left behind in Egypt. Something to which 
One Israelite was never supposed to subject another. But here's Solomon, conscripting Israelites into forced labor. But while we wonder how we feel about this, we quickly see the fruits of all this labor. Nevertheless, like everybody's happy in Israel, eating and drinking. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And they enjoyed the benefits of the large tax tributes coming in from Israel's neighbors. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines, as far as the borders of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. And with all that cash, Solomon was able to feed royal staff on fat cattle, sheep, deer, gazelles, roebucks, choice fowl. He had 4,000 stalls for his chariot horses and 12,000 horses. Like, I guess he needs all of that if he's going to have a standing army to protect those giant borders. And he's the first king of Israel to have a navy, except this navy doesn't fight wars. It just goes and brings him gold, like, well, gold and other things. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea, along with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years it returned, carrying gold, silver, and ivory, apes, and peacocks. Now, despite his wealth and wisdom, Solomon's probably known best for sponsoring and overseeing the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. Much of this section reads like those detailed blueprints you read about the sacred tabernacle built in the time of Moses, like just a lot of numbers and ornate descriptions about things. And Solomon wants God to dwell among his people in an elaborate and an ornate structure. And this building is over the top. For example, like the most holy space, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was a perfect cube, 10 cubits squared. But in Solomon's, it was double the size, 20 cubits squared. He made two more giant golden cherubim to overshadow the two that were already on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Like this is such a great and amazing space. Surely it's all for honoring the reputation of the God of Israel. Now we're told at the conclusion of the building account that Solomon spent seven years building the temple. That's a lot of time. But then we read the next sentence. However, it took Solomon 13 years to complete the construction of his own palace. Now how are you supposed to take a statement like that? Is it just a statement of fact, no judgment attached? Or is it a subtle critique exposing that Solomon's wisdom was only skin deep and that his ego was expanding along with his kingdom? Like, you have to keep reading. So Solomon builds his massive palace, as well as a palace for the daughter of Pharaoh. Don't forget about her. She's important. And then Solomon furnishes the temple and dedicates the entire facility with a beautiful prayer and an elaborate ceremony of praise and worship. And God seems to approve of all of it because his divine, glorious presence comes to fill the temple in the form of a cloud, just as it filled the tabernacle in the time of Moses. So maybe the slavery and the marriage to Pharaoh's daughter aren't that big of a deal. Like surely God has endorsed Solomon's kingdom and then you have to wait for it. Solomon then has another visionary dream in chapter 9. God warns him to offer wholehearted allegiance and not follow after gods of Israel's neighbors. Otherwise the temple he has built for God is going to become a heap of rubble. Now after the second dream, we're given this long list of additional accomplishments by Solomon. Uh, there's the list of what the slave labor force built. Uh, there's Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who attacks the city of Gezer. He burns all of its inhabitants to death and then offers it as a wedding gift to his daughter when, he ma when she marries Solomon. We're told of the enormous amounts of gold Solomon's fleet of ships regularly bring in. 
And the question to ask by this point is, uh, is this all supposed to impress us or make us suspicious? Like to top it all off, we find a long story about the Queen of Sheba who traveled from afar to witness Solomon's wisdom and wealth. She brings gifts of gold and spices and precious stones and it's totally blown away by the size and scope of his palace. And this leads to one final list of Solomon's splendor. This list refers to these huge golden shields Solomon has placed over his palace. This large throne of ivory and gold flanked by these huge lions and a huge fleet of horses he imported from Egypt on a regular basis. Now, you know, the kind of imports that an ancient Near Eastern king would want. Surely we're supposed to admire this man. He asked uh, for wisdom, and God gave him wealth and success as well. This is the wisdom of Proverbs at work, right? Like, love God, honor him, and he'll hook you up. That's what this story's about, right? Be a good person like Solomon, and God will fulfill your wildest dreams. Now, sadly, that's a lesson many people get from Solomon's story, which is understandable if you haven't read the entire story from Genesis uh, through Samuel up to this point. However, you already know a thing or two about the human heart from the biblical author's point of view. And you should also call to mind like a really important law that Moses gave Israel about how its future kings were to behave in Deuteronomy 17. Moses writes this from God. When you enter the land Yahweh your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king Yahweh your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For Yahweh has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Solomon goes through and breaks nearly every detail of this law, right down to the horses from Egypt. Now you can see why the biblical authors telling Solomon's story go into such great detail. Solomon was a mixed character, like all the characters we've met so far. And if you're wondering where all these decisions led Solomon, you just turn to chapter 11 of 1 Kings. His marriage alliance didn't end with Egypt. It led to many more marriages, hundreds more marriages, and eventually... All these marriages turned his heart away from full allegiance to the God of Israel. All that wealth and abundance that you thought was a sign of divine blessing looks very different now. It looks like a sad story of slow compromise leading to disaster. We find ourselves back at square one. Saul was the first king to fall, then David's moral compromise, and now Solomon. And as you read on in the book of Kings, you'll see that all the kings of Israel follow in his footsteps. And that divine warning about the glorious temple being turned to rubble, it will come true at the conclusion of the book of 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25. So what can we learn? Like, what what can we learn from Solomon? Solomon had everything going for him, and none of the decisions from his early reign seemed malicious or ill-intended. But slowly, as he went through his life, his heart became insensitive. As a result, his great wisdom that once represented a divine gift became an instrument for self-service and exaltation. It's a realistic depiction of the same character flaw that we saw at work in the story of Saul. Self-deception is by definition impossible to spot on your own. You'll never see yourself going down the road of no return. No one ever sets out to ruin their life on purpose, and certainly not to ruin everyone else's, but it happens all the time. So what can we do to safeguard our lives from the destruction like Solomon? 
I think the smartest thing Solomon did was ask God to help him have a heart that listens to Yahweh and defines good and evil on Yahweh's terms. But instead of making it a one-time request like Solomon, it should be a daily routine for us. God, today, help me to have a heart that listens to you. Much like the daily Shema prayer, listen, Israel, Yahweh your God is God alone. And you should love Yahweh your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Before we act, we listen. Before we speak, we listen. Before we decide to accumulate wealth or power, we listen. Before we get angry, we listen. That's why James, the brother of Jesus, reminds us to be quick to listen. If we would assume that posture that I don't know what's best, but I know the one who does, if we would shape our hearts and our minds to conform to his image in order to know his good, pleasing, and perfect will, if we could follow in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus who snuck off early in the morning to spend time with God the Father and listen, I think our listening would affect our living. And our living would reflect our Lord. The stories of Solomon stand as yet another warning that we should take our own dark side seriously. It also serves as a sign of hope that God will not let the failures of his people get the final word. His promise to David still stands. If Solomon isn't the promised king who will rule over the nations forever, then when that future king does arrive, he will be like Solomon, minus all the negative bits. The hope of the future messianic king becomes one more pointer to God's faithfulness in the face of human unfaithfulness. In this way, the bad news about Solomon points forward to the good news of the future that will arrive with King Jesus. A future where we will all live in safety under our own vine and fig tree because Jesus is ruling as king. A future where we will enjoy the abundance of the kingdom because our king has come to give us life and give it abundantly. And so each week, we come to a table and we have an opportunity to confess our shortcomings. The times we have played judge of the world, decided what we thought was right and wrong. We come and we bend a knee before the king and we say, we are here to listen. The table is also a time of celebration. It's reaching into the future and bringing the joy of a fulfilled kingdom into our reality today because we know Jesus rules and reigns now over our hearts and our lives. The table is a memorial of how God showed his love for us through the death, life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And this table is an invitation open to all who want to find healing and redemption and a true way to life. So today and every day, let us have hearts that listen to our Father in heaven. May we make his name holy. May his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's go to the table. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode next week.